Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal, Brent. You know, I can sometimes be a pretty skeptical person, and there have been a number of moments in my life in which this natural inclination towards skepticism influenced some of my actions and experiences, and has possibly caused me to miss out on things that are truly special. It definitely once prevented me from recognizing in the moment the most punk rock thing I would ever witness, because at the time, I wrongly thought it was anything but that. It happened during my senior year of high school. I'd gone to see my friends Travis and Ben's punk band play at a rec center in Peachtree City, the mostly affluent community located in the county next to ours. In Peachtree City, there's an expansive network of golf cart paths running throughout the entire town, on which residents are able to travel to just about anywhere using their personal golf carts, which is exactly how one of the local bands playing that night arrived at the show. I just remember being outside and watching this group of teenage boys in full punk rock attire. We're talking Doc Martens, pants with numerous zippers, strategically placed safety pins, pull up on a golf cart. And I guess just the combination of these two seemingly contradictory cultures made me totally judge and dismiss them. Because I had this classification in my mind of what I believe constituted a real punk band, I doubted that these kids of privilege could or even had the right to carry that mantle. Looking back, I'm a little embarrassed by the ease and quickness at which I judged these Peachtree City punks, as if I were some sort of authority on the matter. I had no stakes in that scene. I wasn't even a punk. I mean, I liked it well enough, though I was way more into the stuff that was punk-adjacent. I was mainly just there to support my friends Ben and Travis. After their set, I didn't stick around to hear the other bands because, like I said, one had shown up on a golf cart. Had I been a bit more mature and as open-minded as I probably prided myself on at the time, I would have been able to recognize in that moment how truly special the sight of this really was. Here was a group of kids embracing the spirit of punk by defying the expectations of the culture in which they were born, in doing so with a symbol of their privilege. The golf cart was this beautiful negotiation between these two separate worlds. I do wish I had been able to see this at the time, and not have let my preconceived notions and distrust inform my opinion of those guys. I wish I had given them the opportunity to defy expectations. Great things can come about when you allow such an act. I think this is possibly one of the reasons that all these years later, I'm still compelled to listen to the album All Around by Baltimore, Maryland's The Oranges Band. It's a record that embodies the spirit of defied expectations. I first became aware of The Oranges Band towards the beginning of 2004 when I happened upon their music videos for the tracks Fins For Our Feet and OK Apartment. I found myself often returning to these two tracks and thought that this could possibly be a record for me. My mind was also a little blown by the fact that the album on which these two tracks appeared 
was released by Lookout Records. This was also around the same time that I got really into Hearts of Oak by Ted Leo and the Pharmacists, which had also been released by Lookout, and had really challenged my assumptions of the type of music that label would put out. Not that I had anything against the kind of stuff they had previously released, it just wasn't necessarily my scene. But like I said, I had really loved Hearts of Oak, and I also really loved Fins for Our Feet and OK Apartment, especially that middle section in OK Apartment. And I thought, I should probably get myself a copy of this album, if only to be able to listen to that specific moment in my car while driving. So I ordered myself a copy of the Oranges Band's 2003 debut full-length all around. And when it arrived, I put it on and I listened. This is the story of that record. My name is Roman Keebler, and I was a guitar player, singer, lead singer, sort of principal songwriter. Yeah, that's my role. Yeah, so I'm Dan Black. In the band, I primarily played guitar, sang some backups. Pretty much when we made records, we would kind of toss around, you know, doing different roles on different instruments as, as needed, which was um, listening back to the record kind of interesting to remember who was doing what. I had forgotten a lot of that stuff, so. Yeah, Dan played drums on at least yeah, one track, two tracks. Some drums, some bass, some... Yep. keyboards and things yeah so yeah Dan was the multi-instrumentalist he played the most instruments on all of the records that we, that we worked on together Roman Keebler and Dan Black would grow up in Baltimore Maryland and Baton Rouge Louisiana respectively and have very different experiences in regards to when they first began playing music I started playing young I started playing drums when I was about nine and then just was lucky enough to have some friends who were playing guitar that young and so we started bands you know quote unquote bands which were really just you know like two or three people who could barely play you know at, at that point it was mostly kind of mid late 80s metal influenced <laughs> kinds of things um you know the 90s happened and like many young musicians just got into bunker things and transitioned from from speed metal to indie rock at some point in the 90s but yeah it was kind of in bands in high school and not really in bands in college i did not play music until i was about 23 20 something like that um i did not play in high school i was into mostly hip-hop like you know sort of classic mid-80s hip-hop through middle school and high school. You know, I was also into skate rock because I did a lot of skateboarding. 
so there was some punk influence in there and then it was like beastie boys influence and that type of thing and then um i think rem was the sort of the conduit into listening to sort of underground music and independent music um even though they weren't independent at the time but it, it was sort of the gateway towards the underground for me and i think that's what got me interested in playing guitar and then i went to college with a couple guys tim bear art Lavis, who were great guitar players and then you know picked up a few things from them but i think for me it was always about like being in a band and traveling and things like that that's sort of why i why i learned to play so yeah, it wasn't until about 23 and then i think the first band i was in was when i was 25. after graduating from college keebler moves back to baltimore and starts the band roads to space travel with college friend tim bayer The band would release two full lengths on Amish Records before officially disbanding in 1999. Prior to the band's breakup, Keebler had begun attending American University in Washington, D.C. to study audio engineering, and it is through that program that he and Black would meet. In time, the two would collaborate on a recording project that would lead to the eventual formation of the Oranges Band. I was like really trying to push this idea that we were going to, you know, go on the road. And it just wasn't like really, um, just wasn't really taking with the band. I don't, I don't think that they all loved to tour quite as much as I wanted to. And so before that band even broke up, I think I brought these songs down just to Dan one weekend and said, Hey, let's record some songs. I got some ideas. And Dan and I went into the studio one day and, um, I think we were there for the weekend and yeah. came out with, yeah, yeah, we came out with this like three song thing that, I don't know, I mean, I think we sort of blew our minds a little bit. Yeah, it was really fun. It was great fun and we were just like, oh, it sounds like a band. You know? Yeah. American had an amazing studio. It had a Studer 24 track, two inch. Um, do you remember the, the deck? What was that deck called? It was an A80. And just like Neumann and a, mics and like- Yeah, good mics, a fine console. It was a soundtrack solitaire console that sounded good, but you know, it's not known for being some fancy console, but it sounded great. Yeah, yeah. And especially paired up with that tape machine. It was just so crisp. Yeah, so hi-fi. Um, and we did our best to like, to like gunk it up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, <laughs> but yeah, they had a live room, which was good. A nice, nice live room, which we built. Um, like we just were throwing ideas at the wall and they were all sort of stuck, you know? And so we had this like little three song tape that was like, Oh, well, this is cool. Um, what should we do with it? And I don't know. And it, 
And then I just conceived of this band, the Oranges Band. Um, it was the Oranges at first. It wasn't the Oranges Band. That was the, the kickoff that I needed to be like, all right, now I've got a band. Now I'm going on the road. And I started to book this tour just by myself. And in the meantime, I also recorded two other songs in my living room. And that became the $5 EP that we put together. And I just needed something to go on the road with. So I had this single. I had this name of this band. And it was just me. I had been playing with some people. And most of them didn't want to go on the road. <laughs> so I had convinced Dave Voiles, who was playing drums with me. Dave was just a guy around town, you know, like he was in a band called Wrong Button. That was really one of my favorite bands still from Baltimore. Just this like really raw emo band. And they were just so sick. I just loved them. So when I was putting a, a group together, I, I sort of approached him. He said he would go. I remember I was booking it for the Roads and Space Travel at one point, And then I, I flipped it over to the oranges, <laughs> I think. <laughs> like that's like, great. It was just, yeah, it was, it was just with friends, you know, like friends that we knew from across the country. So it was easy to just be like, oh, it's not going to be that band. It's going to be this other band. And then the bass player couldn't go. And the keyboard player who we were playing with also decided not to go. And I approached Tim Johnston, my old high school friend, just a great, great friend. He's, he's been playing bass with a lot of bands. I said, hey, do you want to just hop in the van and go on tour? Like, and he said, sure, I'll go. And so that was it. We had a three-piece band and we were heading on the road. And Dan wasn't in the band. We had made that recording and we didn't like really play as a band. Uh, we had just made that recording. That was basically it at that point, although we were still sort of in close contact. But the tour was in June or July. It was in the summer, you know, and Dan had just graduated college. And I think you called me and said, hey, uh, are you going on the road? And I said, yeah. He said, can I go with you? I said, Sure. And yeah, uh, like, what, what do you want to play? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so what do you want to do? Yeah, he, he jumped in the van and, and I'll never forget our first show was in St. Louis. Uh, we had a 14 hour drive to get there. And Dan and I learned the songs in the back of the car on the way there. And there it was. We, we toured for six weeks. Yeah. And by the end of that, we were a band. Like there's and it no, was. Yeah, it was like it was pretty good. Yeah, it was really good. I mean, it, like it just sort of all sort of came together. The tour went really well um like we made our money back and and had great shows and had a lot of fun so it was yeah that was the start of the band and it um that was how dan got in and it was all super loose it was just like hey if you can make it that's cool if not that's cool too like we'll just see what happens and uh yeah by the end of the thing i i don't know maybe the flexibility of all that is what just sort of like i, I always think that that's sort of maybe what what dave like no, like getting Dave to commit to things was always really difficult. So like giving him this this option of like, hey, you can make it, you can not, whatever, however it works. Um, Might have been just what he needed. And then after that, it was like, wow, this is great. Like, we're this band now. So it was pretty cool. As the band progressed, the lineup was solidified as a five-piece with the addition of third guitarist, Virat Shukla. So I think in subsequent early recordings... And I think it was the stuff that maybe eventually became on TV. We had layered a bunch of um, guitar tracks, you know, and, and I think we had built a lot of our songs with three guitar tracks. And um, we, we were working with our friend Art Lavis. He did some tracking with us. And at some point we were like a three guitar band or we, I think 
we sort of thought that we were, we realized that we were. So we invited Virid, who also wanted to sort of go out on the road. We we were just known to like go on the road. So you know, people wanted to people who wanted to hit the road like would would hit us up. You know, like hey, you need someone to go on the road with you. So I think that that's how Virid sort of came along. Uh, we needed a third guitar player. He was available and willing and went on the road with us. I'll never forget this story. Like we were playing with Franz Ferdinand and Eleanor Freeberger was dating the singer at the time. And she, she's a friend of ours, we know her. And so we were, we were chatting and, and we had played and she didn't see the show. She didn't see us play. And she says uh, something like, oh, how is the show? And I was like, oh, it's pretty cool. Like, you know, whatever, like it was, it was pretty loud. I was like, you know, yeah, with three guitars, it gets pretty loud or whatever. And she was like, you guys have three guitars? And uh, I was like, yeah. And she's like, why? And like, <laughs> that, that was her comment on the whole thing. Like, why would you do that? It just makes no sense. Um, but to us at the point, I mean, I don't know how you feel about it, Dan, but to me, it was crystal clear. I thought that we were being rather clever about the whole thing. Yeah, no, like, we were, I, I think it was very logical at the time, you know? Yeah. When you think back on it, we were, really careful about how we did it we did kind of work thoughtfully and carefully to try and like weave around each other and and they were syncopated parts and every once in a while someone would stomp on a on a boost and one guitar would go bonkers for part of the song and then it would drop back out entirely and i think it was startling for a lot of people to we were extremely loud i think yeah and i think people were just like why did that one guitar get so loud? You know, but we like this sort of confusion and the, yeah. the element of just like startling people with these wonky guitars coming out of nowhere. And I think at the time it was just like, it made perfect sense to us. And yeah. we we're just sort of waiting for people to, to get it. I think, I don't know. Prior to Shukla's joining, the band had already completed what they assumed would be their debut full length were in the process of shopping the record around to various labels. Eventually, the band was signed to the California-based independent label, Lookout Records. Founded in the late 80s, the label had largely focused on bands associated with the East Bay punk scene and would release the earliest efforts of Green Day and Rancid. By the early 2000s, the label had begun to broaden its scope, signing such acts as Pretty Girls Make Graves, and Ted Leo and the Pharmacists. Lookout was founded or formed by Larry Livermore, I think his name was. He ran it through its early years. I'm no buff. For the most part, like, that was not my scene. And so Larry Livermore doing the whole thing with the SoCal stuff. And then uh, Christopher Applegate worked with him, like, maybe in the office. I don't know. Again, like, we could probably do the research and, and figure out the real story. But but he became like the sort of partner right-hand man during that early period. And then I think Larry wanted to get out and Chris wanted to take it over. And then the other people that worked there, Molly Newman, Kathy Bauer, um, I can't remember if there was more owners, but I think they were the main three, Chris, Kathy, and, and Molly sort of bought into the label, but they were younger and hipper um they did like that early stuff Uh, molly was in bratmobile chris was in the peaches so like there was this k records thing going on there 
So they were like, had a wider scope of influence. Um, and they wanted their label to reflect their wider scope of influence. And so they were like looking to grow and expand and sort of rebrand um, a little bit. Rebranding something as strong as Lookout Records, I think, w- was impossible. I don't think anybody knew that at the time, but that was the idea. And so I don't know if there was something before Ted. There must have been something that led up to Ted. I can't remember exactly. But but yeah, Ted, I think, was the sort of piece that like set up the rest. So for us, when we were looking for someone to put out our records, we had done a couple of EPs with Morpheus, uh, which is a local label, and had done a couple of tours and just felt like, all right, we're looking for something else. And, and we were just hard workers, you know, and I think that, that labels responded to that. This was when I was playing with Spoon at the time. So I was meeting a lot of people. I had played with the Thumbs, which is a punk rock band from Baltimore. I played drums with them. So I was meeting people all over the place and networking and like, you know, all of this, all of the stuff. So Oranges had their, their debut album coming out. And so I was trying to like, um, trying to find a good home for it. And through the thumbs is how I met Chris Applegate and Lookout. Um, Cause the thumbs were on Adeline, which is a label run by Billy Joe Armstrong. And so there was this California connection. And so when it came time to like shop some stuff, I sent it to, to look out and they responded really strongly. Like, Hey, we love this and we want to put it out, you know? And it was like a little bit surprising, but they were so confident about it and complimentary of it and such great people. You know, we had some other people interested as well. Some people that made more sense, but look out was like, we have money for you. You know, um, you know, we're going to we're going to sign you up to like a deal and we're going to give you money to record a record, I think, as a band. And I think we talked about a lot about this, Dan, and I'm interested in your your recollection of this, too. But I think we felt like we had a good tour and then we had a really bad tour where we were out there with no support, missing shows, transmission in the van going up and just feeling like, oh, man, we can't we just can't do this by ourselves and we need help. And it felt like they wanted to help us. And we also felt like we needed to be developed. Like we weren't just going to come out of the gates and, and just be like knocking them dead. We wanted a, a multi-record sort of situation that we could grow under, you know? And so Lookout did all that for us. And, um, and we, we just built this relationship. And to this day, I mean, there's lots of, you know, there's, there's history with us and, and when they, when they closed up and all that stuff. But like to this day, I still think it, it was a, a really strong choice and, and sort of formed sort of what this band was about. It's funny because it's such kind of a, a foggy time to remember, but I do remember when it was coming down to say the last two choices. And like, like Roman said, there was, there was one that maybe made a lot more sense as far as like what people would expect us to pick out of these choices. And I think I, part of me thinks that, as a group and as a crew of guys, we were just defiant in a way, <laughs> yeah. you know, like yes. we were like, nobody would expect us to pick Lookout out of this. And so we knew that what Lookout was doing. And, and I think we all just sort of like respected what they were trying to do. It seemed like they had this really like 
excitement about everything they were doing. And the Ted Leo record was great and people were really excited about it. It seemed like the less obvious choice, which I think is maybe something we just liked feeling of at the time, you know, which is a funny thing to say, like, pick what is least expected of you. But I feel like that sort of fit our personalities a little bit. That's that's such a great point. I I'd never I, I, I wasn't thinking about it that way, but that's that's perfectly put. And we were also into, you know, we considered ourselves kind of punks and we were into surf music. And mm-hmm. I, I think we had a, we had this sort of like love of California as a place and as a sort of feeling. And I think all of that kind of together just felt like it was sort of an unexpected choice to make. And then we we're like, is this what we're doing? Okay, this is what we're doing. After signing with Lookout, the decision is made to record a new batch of songs that would act as the band's debut full-length, rather than release the already completed album. So we had finished up a full-length record that we worked a long time on in a local studio, which we were shopping around. So we thought we had this album. You know, We thought we were going to put this album out um, as our first album release. But I think when we signed with Lookout, it was like, well, we can't put a record out for another six months or something like that, you know? And we were just like, we got to go. We got to be on the road. Like, we need something to tour on. And we came up with this idea where right, well, we'll pare this thing down to an EP, which they'll drop on Lookout, like getting ready for the album. And then we'll record the album. And, um, you know, that'll be the first full-length release. So we recorded in Thanksgiving. 2002 i guess because the record came out in 2003 right so we recorded in 2002 so it would have been most of 2002 that we were coming up with material or i don't know maybe actually probably not most of it probably just half of it because i feel like the material that we brought to the studio a was incomplete again b there wasn't that much of it we wrote on the road a lot of these songs, I, you know, I, I can remember the guitar break for Fins for Our Feet. I can remember writing it before soundcheck in Hoboken. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, sitting on the bench in... Uh, yeah, I remember down. that. Yeah. And I can Max remember is- writing the horn parts for I'm Still Right in the back of the van between, you know, point A and point B, wherever that may have been. But we were writing the ideas, I think, to either the revised songs that we were going to record again or new songs that we were still working on were, were being worked on on the road. Yeah. And I don't, do you, do you remember it that way? Um, I don't remember it quite as well that way. Um, except for what you're like the little bits. Yes. I remember like lyrics yeah. for, for fins for our feet, um, writing those certainly in the front seat of the van probably did a lot of that with, with a few of those songs. Sessions for the record would be held in Benton Harbor, Michigan, at the newly opened Key Club, and would be produced by musician Juan Carrera. I met Juan Carrera, who was in the Warmers um, from D.C. area, friend of a friend. I met him in New York. I don't think I was there for one of our shows, because I think I was alone. This was after we had, you know, maybe released our EP and were figuring out where we were going to record our record. We had a budget. $5,000 budget, which was like a million dollars. So it was this thing of like, all right, now we're looking for 
a producer. Isn't that right, Dan? I think I think we wanted a producer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the time, I think we were really into the idea of making like a pop record. Yeah. And, you know, we were super into Squeeze and yeah. all these kind of like late 70s pop bands. And, and I think, you know, for as weird as we were, we were looking for somebody to kind of record it in a very like different way than we had worked before. Totally. And, you know, and Dan and I had the background in recording. So we would go into recording sessions and like with full ideas and like knowing a lot of stuff. And I think we needed help because I think we were maybe felt a little bit frustrated by our limitations at that point. And I think we also probably just wanted to be the band and not be the the guys behind the board at the same totally. time. Totally. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. Um, I'm not sure that that happened for you. <laughs> I don't know that that happened either, but <laughs> yeah, I think you spent a lot of time behind that board. Yeah. So Juan is such a funny guy. Like we could probably just tell stories about him all the time because we paid him whatever we paid him to produce our record. But I think we also paid him to manage Modest Mouth because that's what he did the whole time. <laughs> he was <laughs> He was just like on the phone all the time. And we just like, remember the dangler? Was that what it's called? That's right, the dangler. He was like, so this is what, 2002. Nobody really used the the earpiece on a cell phone, right? Everybody had flip phones and you just flip your phone and you use your phone, right? But Juan had, a, had an earpiece in throughout the entire two weeks or whatever it was that we were there and he'd be talking and you wouldn't know if he's talking to you or, or modest mouse or who, you know, who he's talking to. And yeah, that's right. We called him the dangler. Cause he always had, had the earpiece and the little microphone hanging next to his face. Yeah. But that was our introduction to the key club. He was like, I met him in a bar. We were talking. He's like, Hey, this new place is opening up. And, you know, I, I think again, back to Dan's point of like, sort of being contrary and like the thing for us to do would have would have been to go to austin record with jim eno from spoon and have brit produce and like make a record that way but we didn't do that <laughs> we, <laughs> we were like no we, we're gonna we're gonna go our own way here and um you know mind you spoon wasn't a, a worldwide phenomenon at that point but um you know we decided that we were gonna like still sort of own our own sort of uh path there and there was a bit of serendipity where this um recording studio was brand new it hadn't even opened hadn't done anything yet uh, we were going to get this opportunity to be the first band to record at this studio and it was going to be sick um they're getting all this equipment and uh, yeah the, the the big story of course is that they had sly stone's board the flickinger yeah they had a flickinger console that was owned by Sly Stone, and there's a whole story behind it. So there's already this like tale of what this recording studio is, and it hasn't even opened yet. And it turns out that our bass player Tim, his family owns a lake house because his parents had relocated to Michigan, and so they had a place up in um, I can't remember what, what whatever town they lived in, um, but they had this lake house down near Benton Harbor. And it was just like this, wait, wait a minute, wait, you've got a house there? Like, and it's right down the street and like, we could just stay there while we're recording. And 
this feels too good to be true. And they were going to give us this big price break, you know, for 3,500 bucks or whatever. We're going to do two weeks because it's the first time we're in here or whatever it was. So it all just sort of fell into place in this way. It really made sense with the, with the personality of the group, you know, sort of getting with this other startup, you know, organization and these other people. And when we met Bill Skibby and Jessica, the, the people who own the studio was just like, wow, this is, this is right. This is, this is right where we need to be. And they were from Chicago. So they would commute from Chicago um, to Benton Harbor, which I think was about an hour, hour and a half. So it was like this full story um, that lined up. And then they made a record. with the track Fins for Our Feet, a well-executed pop song that acts as the perfect introduction to the album. On top of a driving bass line and a floor tom heavy beat, intricate guitar lines subtly interweave around rhythm guitar, creating the ideal backdrop on which Keebler can display his expressive crane. Keyboard textures and hand claps, as well as expertly employed ooing over a melodic guitar solo, add color to the track and leave little doubt as to the pop ambitions of this band. The way that things would generally work is I might bring a riff or a riff and a change, and then we'd put it to the band and see if it was worth continuing to work on. So this was probably like instantly something that was like, okay, yeah, this is something. And then when that happened, then I would feel pressure to like, all right, now I got to make it something because I would generally not have like a lot of lyrical ideas. So to me, this song like felt really complete, but I had to like get a lyric that lived up to what was happening musically which in my opinion going into this recording i was like yeah we got something here because i think we had all the you know and all those like that's where we had a really nice three guitar arrangement i think on this um and that was all worked out wasn't it dan before we went in yeah yeah that's like i was saying i i remember the three of us sitting you know we had just changed the strings on all our guitars and we're sitting in maxwell's and we're just sitting there either before or after sound check and just saying like, we got to work on that middle section of this thing. And uh, to me, the recording and the, the writing of that part is like 
the finest of the three guitar moments on the record. And I think playing live was always just really, really a nice three guitar spot. Yeah, um, you're right. That that was a um, that was a, a a feature, you know, sort of moment for the three guitar arrangement. Yeah, I think we were all really happy about this track. Um, I think everybody involved really liked it. I think we probably got right to that track. I mean, I don't, I don't know if we did other ones first, but again, yeah. I think it was, it was pretty strong. I think we probably went in and just, just went right to it. I think we had a really strong sort of idea production-wise of how it was going to go too. You know, we, we had arranged it sort of to be this building beginning, which, you know, I think you probably remember Roman. We sort of structured the beginning like um my sweet lord was the idea right so you had these acoustic guitars and then the drums kind of like they don't fade in in the same way but they come in in this sort of abnormal spot yeah the drums but remember the drums were based on the elvis costello drop that's right that's right um in in whatever song that was like the snare drop that came in late that came in like a, a beat late but yes, I, I do know what you mean. I think I think we mixed those two ideas together to get the beginning. Yeah. I do love that as the intro being sort of like everybody comes in in their own spot. You know, it's I think the, right. the guitars and bass first and then the snare drum and I think Virit come in together and then my guitar comes in a half a measure later and it sort of it sort of steps up into the whole band, which I think is a really nice beginning to the record so lyrically like once we had that all lined up again like you know i think we all felt really great about that song i mean i think it was probably going to be the first track no matter what and i think riding up to michigan i was still dialing in what the words were going to be and i would sort of come up with like lyrical concepts that i might run through records that I could sort of go to. And I remember like when I came into this idea that like I could write like a fantasy sort of piece and sort of flip some things around. That's sort of how it went when it became, you know, something that had legs that I was really starting to develop. And um, I'm not sure I got all the way there, but like, you know, the, the idea of the song is like the climate has, has torn our world apart and California is, is as they said, is falling into the sea just like they expected it would. But the bright side is that like we can live under the water. Like it's not that big a deal. Um, so, uh, you know, sort of looking at the bright side of like climate destruction. <laughs> so there's this <laughs> sort of like sort of clever little thing. And I just thought it was so, it was sort of cheeky, you know? Um, and I think it worked there with it. And, there's some remnants of probably where it started, which is like the apartment bit, um, you know, like, which might've been like a little bit more relationship based. Um, but yeah, that, obviously that was a hook, you know, the apartment bit. So had to keep that. And there's like apartment other places in the album. So I love stuff like that. You know, you hear apartment a few times on the album, you hear the phrase all around a few times on the album. I tend to need those things to, to sort of, because I'm not like a, not a prolific lyric writer you know i just i need something to to go off of and we can't bounce off of this track we've got to say something about the video which was (laughs) like a a, like a real banner day in tov history we had won this contest it was called turkey shoot this website was putting together this contest actually 
we were chosen to be the song to run this contest for. And this is like, again, like this is where Lookout, like these were the things that Lookout did for us. Lookout like really repped our band. And it was amazing the thing that they did for us. So they took our song and like got it into this contest where the winner had a $10,000 budget to make a video. You know, and our earlier video was made with a thousand dollar budget that we scraped together out of nothing. So like ten thousand dollars again was like, whoa, we're gonna make a real video. And you know, we were sort of screening concepts. They were sending us scripts, and, and so we came across this one um, that we liked a lot, and it just made sense with the lyrics, and it was underwater. And I can't remember like how much of the idea, like if we influenced it at all, but like it became this underwater thing and it was like a school play and i think we were thinking of it as in a rushmore kind of way the day that we recorded it was like we were in la there was a sound stage like it was it was pretty legit and we had hair and makeup and we we went out and bought costumes and and stuff like that yeah that was certainly crazy yeah do you remember like the hairstyles yeah that's right i yeah yeah i brought it up the other day, I can't remember, but somebody was talking about having something in their kid's hair because they put glycerin in our hair to make it look like wet. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and we were supposed to be underwater. So we were supposed to have our hair kind of like wet and standing up. And so they, just, right, yeah. they slathered us with glycerin and combed our hair straight up. And we spent hours at the end of the day pouring baby powder in our hair and like um, just intense amounts of glycerin. Yeah. Yeah. We, we felt what it was like to be like, you know, actors that day, I think, you know, like on set. It was really funny, but it was fun. We yeah. had a good time. Yeah. That video was sort of lost to time. I, it's gone. I don't know where it is. It was part of a DVD compilation that Lookout put out that I may or may not have somewhere, but, yeah, I haven't seen that video in at least 15 years. Yeah, same. Stones Like Swagger and Relentless Three Guitar Attack, the track Keep Your Teeth is an exuberant indie rock boogie that never lets up, which is just the way it should be. All right, so this is Chuck Berry filtered through the stones. Because I was like, yeah, I liked Chuck Berry a lot at the time. And this is probably Roll Over Beethoven. And I think what I probably did was flip the structure, um, you know, where Roll Over Beethoven started. Um, started low and went high. Like, I think I started high and went low here or something like that. Um, that was, I think what I was doing when I was, when I was doing it and it has the little do, do, you know, sort of fifties little, um, riffy sort of thing to it. So yeah, that's where, that's where it is. And it's got, it's got the Keith Richards reference, you know, the, 
when I saw young Keith, that's sort of like what that is. You know, it, it is like an, it is like an acknowledgement that yes, this is the stones. Yes. This, this is Chuck Berry. Yes. This is all of that, you know, through us and with three guitars and like, you know, all that. So th there's tracks that we record that are successful whether you expected them to be or not. And this is definitely one that was like, yeah, we hit it. Like, this is it. This is a successful piece at the end of the day. One thing I love about this song, and this reminds me of something that our friend Art said once, he was just like, you know, something about the oranges, like you start on a chord and you chug on it. And then the, the other guitar will, will start chugging on it. And that's cool. And then a third guitar comes in and chugs on the same chord but for some reason it's it's working and then you just keep chugging on that and like and like that, that's that's how the oranges work you know and i was like i guess so you know like and then you know you sort of mod mod off of that but here there's a point and i hear it every time where it's uh where there's a change but the change is the same chord it changes to yeah. the same it like it, there's a change but there's no change at the same time so it's like then when I saw young Keith, like on the Keith, like, or, or actually before that, leading up to that, I think there's a, there's a drop of a, of a guitar that changes where we are in the song, but it's the same chord. And it just drops yeah. another one on top of it. <laughs> It's know. the point where, like, you know, before I said we were very careful to not be just jamming the same chord, but it is that point in the middle of that song where I think all three of us, and one, I think, goes from the octave up down to the open G or whatever it is, and That's it's it. just huge. I mean, it just... Yeah. It, and I can remember playing that live when we did have three guitars, and, you know, whoever went from, you know, 12 to down to the record it was it was yeah. just so loud you know and yeah. i i think you hear that in the record it's it's subtle but it's it's good yeah yeah I, that's 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 a point of this record that i really like you know, just um because it does remind me of that dan it does remind me of like you know those conversations and those things like yep we're just gonna this, we're gonna own this we're just gonna chug on this thing this is gonna be our thing lyrics like i don't remember like being so thoughtful about them but they really came out and they made make a lot of sense you know the whole idea that the teeth is is the words you know and you know they they get you in trouble or they're, they're when they're out of your mouth you know like keep that's like just shit just keep your mouth shut you know that's what you know um and you won't and you won't get into any trouble but like some people just can't do that you know like um and it just, I don't know, it just, 
it fit it fits the mood of the song like the, the keith richards things like fits right in there and so it's nice to to come back to things so you can better reflect on them in a little bit of a different way and say yeah like that, that's good uh, like uh, you know me or not like that's a that's a good that's a good bit like we did a good thing there titled My Mechanical Mind contains Blade Runner referencing lyrics that nicely match the track's machine-like musical backing, which creates the perfect landscape for Keebler's confident vocal performance. So vocally, this whole album was a real stretch, you know, the whole idea going into this record was a stretch and I hate to admit this, but it had a lot to do with my father, like, who, who like was, he's just a very sort of, sort of casually critical kind of guy, but he would just be like, you got to turn your vocals up. Like you guys are never going to be popular until you tune your vocals up. So, and I would always be like, no, 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 you know, just like, no, that's, that's not, that's not doesn't make sense like no we're doing this the way we want to do it and we're going to be popular on our own terms but in the back of my mind i'm going you know maybe it's you know you know some sort of subconscious need to uh <laughs> you know gain a gain approval but like i'm going i gotta get these vocals on you know like i gotta be able to like push my vocals in the mix and so i don't dan I, do you remember us like going like as yeah, far as I, we could you know it's funny i listening back to it it strikes me that the vocals are all very upfront very clean uh, i'm i think un, unaffected at all you know it doesn't seem like we did much delaying or reverbs or they're very dry they're very upfront which is in complete contrast to how we had ever recorded vocals in the past and i think we dirtied them up in the future too you know i think yeah this record sort of from start to finish has a, has a definite sound to the vocals that is not like anything else we ever did. And, you know, I'm not saying that's good or bad. It's just, yeah, I, I don't remember consciously saying like we need to push it and it needs to be clean and it needs, but um, yeah, I think subconsciously it must've been there. And like I said, I think we were making the pop record that we wanted to be this sort of like mission statement of coming out with the full length record. We were doing the thing that we thought that people would be surprised by because our earlier stuff was so nasty and, and sort of like crass, you know, that like, yeah. wait a minute, what is this thing? You know, where did this come from? You know, we loved, we loved to try and do that. But I remember like being in the mixing going like, 
is it too much? Like, can we go higher? Can we do it? Like, is that, yeah. are we, are we being ridiculous? Like, is this like, no, we can do this. We can definitely do this, you know, and just sort of like sucking it up and being like, I'm going to go a little bit to where I'm uncomfortable with it. Yes. I think we probably went a little bit too far, especially for like where I was in my vocal talents. Then like, I'm not a natural sort of singer, to be honest with you. Like everything was sort of fairly hard earned, you know, like, and on subsequent records, like gets better in my opinion. I don't think that's everybody's opinion. I think a lot of people like the vocals on this record, but they're a little bit, I don't want to say forced, but, um, but yeah, we were definitely tr trying to go for something. And, and I like that we did that, whether it was successful or, or not in all cases, but here on mechanical mind, a, my vocal came, it, it was in a nice register for me, but Virat's backing vocal was a big deal for our band at that time because we didn't have anyone, especially live, who could just like bang that backing vocal. Our voices like locked in there and it really worked. So that was a big key of this song was, was that um, backing Virat going super high on that. He loved to do that. This is another sort of motif. This is the sort of Blade Runner motif that runs through. There's a couple of instances of that. Um, yeah, this is the built sort of, um, you know, the robotics, the machination, and um, there's eyes here, there's eyes in other tracks, like Optical Eyes. Those two songs go together in my mind. Mechanical Mind and Optical Eyes, they're, 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 the, they're the same sort of, they're very similar sort of ideas and tracks. Um, they're both sort of Blade Runner based. Is this the one? Does this one has has the reference? The Dream of Electric Sheep. Yeah. So this has yeah, the, yeah. this has the reference to it. So when I'm tired of sleep, I dream of electric sheep, which is the name of the book of Blade Runner is Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? So that's the reference there. So yeah, this is all very, very Blade Runner based. Um, very like futuristic and robotic and sounds that way in the track and uh again like yeah it was a it was a real it was a showstopper in some in some ways like you know because we could just bang those chords out whenever we played with other groups they you know remember ted leo used to always like used to always play those chords yes yeah, that's right that's right when ted would sound check his guitars that would be his his guitar sound check was that yeah that opening riff yeah and uh, yeah, so, and if, if Britt took his inspiration for a mathematical mind there, and we've never talked about like, if that's what that was, I don't even know that that's what that was. I don't know, but we did bounce ideas, you know, off each other. I mean, it's a similar, mathematical mind is a similar track really, you know, with that sort of mechanical sound and all that stuff. So, so I would would be surprised if it wasn't somehow related. In fact, again, talking about my dad, I think my dad sort of went on the spoon message board. Oh my and God. Like, and like, oh, I remember. I remember. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like, and like started trashing spoon for being like hacks and stealing our music. I was like, Oh, what are you doing? You're killing me. <laughs> I, I remember I actually called Brit to say, Hey, listen, you might say something on the message board uh it's you know disregard you know he was just like he's like it's no problem you know 
Sounds like, sounds like your dad is very proud of you. I was like, yes. <laughs> Musically evoking the song's lyrical content, the non-stop energetic burst of My Street is a re-recording of a track that had previously appeared on the band's On TV EP. You remember Dan? Um, I'll never forget this again about Juan. We were, you know, trying to get our guitars to sound a certain way or do just like some different stuff. And Juan would just always say, like, I can't do anything with your guitars. They always sound the same. He's like, you put them in different amps, you use different guitars. It always sounds exactly the same. So like, yeah. I can't, I can't do anything with it. And I remember being super frustrated that we got this like producer, and he was right. like, No, I can't. That's the guitar. That's what it is. And we would be like. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That was never our experience in yeah. the past. Yeah. And then the next record, you'll notice that there's about 75 guitar sounds and they all sound entirely different. We're like, no, dude, like we can have different sounding guitars, I promise. So that's really funny. But what's ironic about it is that this song was not recorded with the rest of the songs in the key club. Um, this, so this song was added after the fact in a studio in DC because Lookout felt we needed another sort of rock song or, or pop track or whatever it was. You know, they wanted another song because we handed in a 10 song record. They wanted 11 songs. They wanted to counteract like some of that weirdness, I think, with on side B with a little bit more like rock and roll. Um, so they sent us down to DC um, to record this track, which which is cool. Um, I wasn't opposed it, it to it. Was, I think it was our third or fourth time to record the song which totally yeah i think it stands as a good version of it but it's just another capturing of of us playing that song in some studio at some point in time it's probably not as cool as the one before it and that's you know the one that's on the ep i think is probably cooler in my mind I, it's not might you not think so good. I th yeah i'd have I to I'd listen to it again for that one my favorite is the i would uh, from memory at least i would say the original one isn't that the That's one that different. ended up on the EP? It's different. Yep, I remember now. So so yep. the one that we did at ACR, I'm going to say, yes. is the definitive version. But I don't think I still have it anywhere. So That's it, a, it's so funny. I'll have to listen to it again. I don't... And I would say, you know, in my brain, after that one, I think this one probably, you know, hits the hardest. Okay. But maybe yeah. I should listen to On TV because I haven't heard that in you know, 15 years. So, so yeah, I was conceptualizing the one on, on TV as the one that we did at ACR, which I do remember liking. I don't, I wonder why we redid it. Maybe the, yeah, I don't know. But then look out, look out made us redo it again for the yeah. third or fourth time. Yeah. We weren't that thrilled, but we did think it was a good song and felt like, 
Well, you know, probably more people are going to hear it, so we might as well put it on. Right. Um, it's one of the only songs on this record, especially, uh, maybe there's a couple, but it's one of the only songs that I have a very clear memory of writing. I remember I was at a track and I decided I smoked back then. I may have not been smoking at this point, but like I wasn't in good shape. I decided I was going to, you know, sort of make an effort to get in shape. And I ran around this track one day at Hopkins University and I was laboring. It was really difficult. I was not doing well. And there was another guy just running circles, just boom, 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 just just running these circles. And I was just stunned at how easy it was for this guy to, to run around this track and how difficult it was for me. And I sat in my van after doing that. And I think I was waiting for my girlfriend at the time, just had this time to kill. And I wrote these lyrics, you know, sort of, you know, you know about, about getting old, really, about like, this is a moment of me feeling like, like I'm getting old. I might've been like 30 at the time, not quite. Um, actually, probably when I wrote it, I was probably 27, 28, but um, it, it was a moment where I felt like a time, time was passing for me. get expertly crafted power pop and the track all that money you'll get over it This was the radio song, right? Yeah, yeah I, I felt like, you know, I think it's a good pop song. I think at the same time, I, I think we all thought it had sort of a television kind of vibe. So, it, you know, I think we always were trying to think we were doing something weird at the same time that we were making good pop songs. But um, it's, you it know, was, pretty straightforward. Yeah, television is the uh, inspiration for it. I mean, I could probably pick out the track that I that I sort of stole that riff from. I did a lot of I don't know why, but like I did riffing and chording at the same time a lot in a, in a lot of tracks. Or that's just sort of my natural inclination, and maybe that's television related because I feel like they do that too. But yeah, this is because it's in D. Um, there's a yeah, whatever television track it is, you know, just sort of meant to be that sort of thing. But Dan's exactly right. Like 
we then wanted that to to elevate to also you know be um you know not necessarily the Bee Gees or something but like just just something that's like really acceptable on like a mainstream radio station i remember that was sort of what we were doing when we were mixing and recording we were just like yeah is this can we hear this on the radio is this is this going to be on mainstream radio and not that we necessarily thought it would be but we just wanted to know that it that it could be i think maybe i listen back to it and it's a little bit you know a little bit much um there are times when i go that's too long you know when i'm listening back to it i'm going that we went too long <laughs> that, that might be a time i think listening to the end of the song where i'm like all right what's next you if know? i remember right i think we cut it in half live after that yes. record came out i think we were just definitely. like that that is plenty <laughs> <laughs> we definitely did yeah <laughs> but remember um lookout didn't like it um chris didn't like it because he loved the early version and I remember his comment. He was on and on about this sound of the snare drum. He was just like, <laughs> he was like, but the sound of the snare drum on the old one, like, where is it? And I'm like, yeah, dude, I have no idea what you're talking about. I was like, I, of all of the things that are happening in a song, the the least thing that I can understand right now is the sound <laughs> of the snare drum. Well, he's right. And again, back to ACR demos. I, yeah, this is another one that we just. Again, it's just capturing us in a different studio, but uh, I don't think we chased the demo once on this record, which is probably a good thing. You know, we weren't comparing sounds. I think we were just playing it as a band in a new place. And but yeah, I know I know what he's talking about because I I can remember how crisp the the demos were on that, and to sort of think about it, you know, yeah, and this one maybe he was that, right. Uh, yeah, I think I think he might be. I mean, this one on the demos did did have a, a you know it was way more television you know yeah um yeah and and that was cooler um but i don't know yeah i mean we, we were trying something for sure yeah and, and it fits it fits on the record and and um it's cool The album's title track is a sparsely arranged number 
and one of two songs from the record, the other being O Madeline, on which only Black and Keebler appear. Both of those tracks were recorded, I think, after everyone else had left. I don't think we were extending our time. I think that was sort of the plan, is that people would stay until they were done recording and then they would go back. And I think we had about, do we have a full two weeks away? We had 10 yeah, days. Yeah, we were so. there for, I think we were there for two weeks. Yeah. yeah. And so um, there were these stages. So like, it was just this epic amount of time and this epic amount of time to be working on a record. And it was really, really excellent to do. This track is all Dan. I don't remember like the where the idea came from or what I had, but if I had anything, it was just like what you hear me doing, and we didn't know what to do with it. And I don't, Dan, tell the story. Like, uh, it, it, yeah, it's it's a hard thing for me to remember. I do. I recall you had a demo that may have been all vocals. Is that possible? It it's is. Just like you blown out, just like wailing these words. Yes. I and I don't know why. Right. I thought there was something special about it. And I was like, let's let's try and do something with that weird thing. And I think, again, feeling probably just defiant and contrarian in this like middle of the top record, we just had to shake off like a couple of weird things that, you know, we always want to throw some weirdness in there. I think it was just, we had this guitar part and these vocals. And I think we laid the guitar down and then I think I spend an hour playing some drums and playing some bass. Um, yeah, but you're not giving yourself credit, right? So, like, it, yeah. you weren't. I mean, like, we had this like shell of an idea. It was garbage, and like, I, I might have gone to lunch or something. And it, when I came back, you had something that like elevated it into another stratosphere. Like the things, the thing that you did to this, like made it something because it wasn't anything before that um i might have been there when you were doing the drum or not i mean but it was like yeah. when the bass dropped i mean i remember like i remember like almost like a presentation like you were like <laughs> all right he, he, here's what i did with this and it was like yo all right this is cool and then when the bass dropped it was like oh my god my mind is blown like this is sick you know like it was just and and it was exactly what you said it was just like this bizarre moment yeah that we that we were like oh yeah this is this is on like this is definitely on because like who's not going to listen to this thing and go what are these guys doing <laughs> yeah exactly you come out of the last song and then you're into this and it's like what what is this it's just dark and weird and uh and when we played it live it was the same thing you just get people just like gawking at you at the end of this thing <laughs> And that yeah. I think is what it kind of does in the record too. Is like it definitely when, does. When do we clap? You know. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I, I remember it, it was just fun. It was just like throwing, like you know, throwing ideas on tape. And um, I remember the the bass was Rick Nielsen's bass that was in the studio, which is kind of cool from Keep Trick. Wow, I don't, re I didn't know that. Yeah, and uh, and they had a bunch of Rick Nielsen picks too. So I played it. I played his bass with his pick, and uh, it was like a little short scale bass. I think it was cool, and yeah. I remember we also tried some crazy like dub things to it that I think we ended up throwing out. You know, like we were switching the from the repro head to the sync head in the middle of the song in different spots, and like oh, that's right, making Isn't the tape skip. 
There was probably yeah. a couple of mixes with some kind of dub delays and things happening. I was super into dub and like weird, you know, stuff like that. And I don't think any of it made it to the record, right? It's pretty straight. I think we did a dub delay at the very last, like the very the last episode. note. That was done in post. That was done in mastering. Is that right? Yeah, because I remember it, like it's it's not that good. Yeah. Um, it yeah, was done by, by John Golden or like John Golden. I think it was maybe okay. John Golden's son. Um, but that was definitely done in post because the first one they sent back, I was like, no, 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 no. Like, that's funny. And because uh, they did this like, da, 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 da. I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> just like, just like a dub delay, like, da, 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 you know? Yeah. And then yeah. they sent it back and it was like, not perfect, but I was like, all right, good enough. You know, like, um, that's what I remember about that. That's great. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, maybe somewhere on some mix CD of mixes, there's a really crazy mix of this song but maybe lost the time too yeah it could be i mean this is another one where about three quarters of the way through i'm like okay <laughs> yeah like, yeah we might have been a little bit indulgent into our into our things true moment of glory is the undeniable gem OK Apartment. With its rollicking mixture of guitars, bass, and drums, the band maintains a steady sprint, riding on top of chords, and eventually ascending to a climactic release of pure indie rock bliss. To quote Mark Antony from Julius Caesar, if you have tears, prepare to shed them now. that this song works you know this was sort of a signature piece for us always always was sort of always will be like something that's connected to to our band we made the video for it which is a great video to me it works like on a lot of levels like the like the lyrics 
I don't know. Like, I, again, it's another one of these things where, like, I wasn't trying to say anything, but as I reflect back on them, it's like, wow, they're, they're very poignant and clever. Um, geez, I guess I'm a genius. Um, you know, but, like, <laughs> no, it's just like, I don't know. I look back at them and, and don't remember, like, feeling proud about making these lyrics, but, like, do think that they were very good. The, the apartment thing was very directly sort of, you know, there's a Baltimore and sort of New York, I don't know, you wouldn't call it a rivalry necessarily, but being from Baltimore, you know, was not just like a badge of honor, but it was like this, again, this defiant thing of like, yeah, like, no, we're not from New York. No, we're not going to New York. No, we're not going to try to live in New York. No, we're not going to try and say we're from New York. We're from Baltimore. And that's cooler than being from New York because like being from New York is lame. And like, anyone can go to New York and be like that. We're just not going to do that. Um, so that was like a very, like, you know, Baltimore had this like inferiority complex about who it was, but it also bred this like, you know, attitude of, of defiance of this scrappy attitude. And, and that's what this is. Like my apartment looks just like your apartment, but it's twice as big, you know? Um, so like, fuck off. Right. My apartment's bigger than yours. You know, um, you know, that's that's pretty much all it's saying, you know. And um, yeah, these great boxes are OK computers, but they keep me inside nearly all the time. That's just like those are computers, obviously. And I got the little OK computer reference in there, which was which was nice. But like, again, like looking back on that, I can go, hey, that's that's a clever little thing. And, and that's when I was graphic designer at for work and and that's what i did i worked on a computer all day and when i went home i sat on the computer and and like that's what i did so like you know these these great tools all they did was just keep me inside like you know away from other people so that's sort of like lyrically what's going on there but um it's another older song that we had played on the road so much that it had sort of become this different version you can find the earlier versions on the Morpheus EP and to to just kind of remember playing it, adding the third guitar to it, extending it a little bit. You know, we had a couple of these little little songs that may have been a minute and a half in their first incantation, and then we sort of recreated them to put them on this record. I listened to some like old school like rock and roll songs podcasts, you know, and it just how often songs are made and remade and, and things like that. Like at the time, I think we probably thought that, that it was like lame to keep doing songs again, but like it's a rock and roll tradition, you know, like it, people do it all the time. So like um, looking back, it's, it's, it's sort of interesting.
horn-assisted track, I'm Still Right, Still, is a brief and dynamic number that even with the addition of new elements is still in keeping with the overall sound of the record. I don't know why we added them, Dan. Do you remember? Uh, I think it was just a part of the grand scheme to make a short song long. <laughs> you yeah. know, it was another yeah. like, it was a, it was scheming to make a pop song out of a little snippet kind of guided by voices or I think originally we had, we had thought it was kind of like um, Welcome to the Working Week. You know, it's a one minute song. Yeah. And, uh, and so it was just drawing it out. And I think I, it's one of those that I can remember sitting in the back of the van, like playing those horn parts on guitars. We did those in Baltimore. Is that right? Yeah, they were recorded after the fact for sure. Yeah. They're saxophones. We didn't. We didn't, right. sex, we didn't have That's a saxophone right. player. It's yeah. probably, probably as simple as that. We didn't have yeah. a saxophone or a trumpet. I think we worked out the progression, had the horn parts, and didn't record them, and then came home and recorded them. You know, we were trying a lot of different stuff, and things that we sort of thought were unlike us, I think. Although I, I guess we'd probably thrown some horns on things in the past. But maybe not in such a uh, horn section manner. Right. Right. I can't, I'm trying to think if we did horns before this. Um, I knew that we wanted to. Uh, yeah. The whole idea was where we were branching out with this whole thing. It started as our little thing and then we grew it in the process of this album. Like we were trying to do to ourselves personally and as a band, you know. Oh, you know what I, I wanted to mention? Like in various tracks throughout records and stuff, I try to sneak in my age, and this is where I do it here. 30 links for 30 years. So I was 30 years when I made this record. And um, I think I do that in other, on other albums or in other songs. This is where I do that here, on this record. With its ethereal mixture of organ and slide guitar, the mid-tempo number, North Carolina, is the perfect come-down following the non-stop energy of the previous two tracks. to write these lyrics and I think I went to the lake you know I think I found some space and needed to solve for like this song and maybe I had an idea maybe I didn't but um, yeah Caroline is my sister uh, that's her middle name um, and it's just this idea she went to North Carolina um, when she went to school and it's just this idea that 
that she was lonely, you know, and, uh, you know, it just sort of, I just need, I just needed that to build and, you know, give me an emotional place to, to start from. Um, because I mean, to be honest, like there's not a lot of emotion through this record and maybe I was challenging myself to get emotional. Um, certainly on this, on the next song, just trying to open up to emotion or, or revealing that emotion. And like I said, I sort of constructed the scenario. When I listen to it today, even still, I, I feel the emotion that I was building in it, you know, thinking like, oh, my sister is lonely. <laughs> like I made it up, but it still makes me sad, you know? So that's what that is, you know? I, I sort of constructed it and, and was able to articulate, you know, that feeling uh, in the lyrics and, yeah, I, I like it okay. I, I don't remember anything else about like writing it or why we included it or if we thought it was good. It's funny. I, It's one that I had forgotten was on there until I went back to it just in the last day. And it's one that I remember people really latching on to when it came out. So, right. you know, there's okay. something to be said for that, for sure. As we near the end of the record, we get the acoustic guitar-driven track, Oh Madeline. Well, it's inevitable you'll breathe, Madeline. Well, it's inevitable you'll breathe, Madeline. Well, it's inevitable you'll breathe, Madeline. Oh, definite story behind it and yeah i mean we had been in the studio we've been working on all the tracks and i don't know we were coming up short right dan like we yeah yeah we I felt mean, like we just needed another handful i think we did we did three or four songs in those probably day or two we needed something we didn't know what it was um i was forced to go into my bag of tricks to see what i had on like tapes and recordings and I had brought up a four track with me of little ideas and things. And maybe I was going to be making some stuff while we were there. And um, I found this track like pretty well developed. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was pretty far along in its sort of structure or its arrangement. And I remember I, everybody went back or went back to the lake house and I stayed up and worked on this, on this song on the four track all night. 
or most of the night just to get a decent arrangement of it or get the lyrics and just to have a finished song so that when you came back in the morning i could say here's the song like here's what i got and i played it for you in the morning you guys walked in i said here's what i did and i, I don't i don't remember how i felt about it. i was probably exhausted and you were just like yeah that's it that's it that's gonna do and i thought great i was really proud that i actually did it and that you liked yeah. it and um and that we had the track that we could work on so that's what we did and then yeah when we actually did it and started to work on it it was really fun like all the little boom chop boom top boom top boom top like we made a little cool little track out of it and so um yeah i, I think that's yeah really cool i think track. it's got good it's got good little parts all the little guitars that are kind of running through it. I remember in particular, we decided there should be one crash. You remember yes. that? You remember sitting down and yes. Jessica, actually, we were like, where should we put the crash? We just said, we want one crash. Where should it go? That's why it says special thanks to Jessica Ruffins. Oh, does it? It does. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Uh, she actually, I think she engineered that day too, right? It says recorded and mixed by Bill, but special okay. thanks to Jessica. So I think that she was there all day. Yeah, yeah. And I remember, yeah, she really, she really liked this song. Now that I think about yeah. it, she was like, this was like the song that she really liked. Yeah. And we were just there with Bill and her and you and me. A ton of fun. Had a great time with it. But it's about my niece. Madeline is her name. Um, and it's, it's, yeah, it's real. You know, like, it's just, it's like a song directed direct to her specifically, you know, and uh, again, like just trying to, trying to open up personally a little bit there i don't know if she's ever heard now she's 21 years old oh 18 years old how old is she 2003 she was yeah she's 21 or something like that she's born in 2000 um so we've never talked about it i don't think <laughs> it's funny i don't i don't i don't even know that i've talked much with my sister about it it's just funny The album's penultimate track, the angular intense optical eyes I can see, is yet another song from the record in which the lyrical motifs of eyes and robots appear and are befitting of the track's mechanical light groove. That riff was always, to me, it has that minor kind of wire choppiness. Then just like flipping it on the chorus, you know, like that was the real, I think, thing that we were trying to do on this song was go from like that mechanical rocking, you know, machine chugging, chugging, and then boom, flip it. And that's what this song is. Like it's the eyes open on the robot and now it's in a different realm of consciousness and you know everything is smoothed out and you know 
that's sort of like I visualize songs a lot of times and, and sounds and this is one that's very visual to me and like again based on this sort of Blade Runner-esque sort of like futuristic sort of thing and again that's that futurism is, is in that guitar riff it's in the sound um, it's in the tone it's in the you know it's sort of on top of the beat you know and it just damn it's just moving forward and forward and then it flips to smooth out you know so that's what this track is to me The record ends with the instrumental track, The Trees on My Street, featuring a hypnotic loop of synthetic-like notes that continuously pulsate as jangly guitars and a surf rock beat slowly pull to the front as the track's opening sounds fade into the background. Eventually, the band brings in trumpet and piano, which adds texture to the sonic space, but doesn't distract from the song's main focal points. It's a track that evokes a sense of warmth and nostalgia and nicely concludes all around. So those are direct, those are guitars. How many did we do? I mean, that must be... Uh, there are probably six guitars on that part. And they're just, they're plugged directly into the board and just distorted. This is a Brian Eno reference. Not veiled. <laughs> yeah, no, this is Here Come the Warm Jets, right? Um, yeah. Although the only person that ever called me on it was Mac. Oh yeah, we were when we were talking about the demos. Yeah, it was literally a reference. You know, we were just trying to do that, and it was cool. Upon re-listening to it, it goes forever in the beginning. Like I'm just dying for that thing to, to happen, and and what we always wanted was there's a moment where the beginning gives way to the next part, and and it sort of the drum pops out of the soup and then you realize that there's something that's been happening under there the whole time. You don't know how long it was happening because it could have been there the whole time. You know, it's just, it's just this moment. That, that's what, that's what I was always looking for in, in the mix of the beginning of that song was, was that moment where that transition becomes coherent and part of like what's real. Um, in the world <laughs> as opposed to before it's not you know you may be there it may not be there I don't think it needed to take as long to get there um, as it took but that's the whole song to me is that, is that little moment and then you have something to follow 
and then the guitar comes in and then you have a nice little melodic track. sort of like pulls things from the album it just sort of takes the symbols from the album and repositions them you know and just in a different way just so that there's there's something that's thematic about the whole thing and we sort of keep everything tied together and you know it's a very diverse album like probably too diverse you know to dance point like that's what we tried to do but i think that this was meant to like Yes, wrap it up, but also tie it together. Yeah, I'm not sure it does that, but I don't know. Dan, do you feel like it, it does that? Um, I mean, I think I think a lot of people felt like it was like the perfect closer, you know, which I think in a way it's it's maybe a little precious in that sense that it that it is sort of the nostalgic instrumental track. But I also can appreciate that that it does do that for people that it feels like a like an appropriate close because the record is kind of weird i mean it is all over the place and i feel like this song kind of takes the beginnings a little weird goes on too long can't really tell what the sounds are being made by and then you know some sort of more melodic normal reference points start to show up and i think if it gives you a nostalgic feel in the end that's probably it's probably a nice thing to do yeah. for people. <laughs> yeah, probably. For the album art, Keebler would use a painting of a polar bear for the front with various images throughout the inside and on the back that would speak to the themes present within the record. I never got into album titles until I did artwork, um, generally. I don't know that we knew what it was going to be called all around, but like we were writing a story of what this band was and we always knew that like as a band we had an opportunity to write our own story to tell people what was important to us um and find our niche like you know something to market something to talk about and so we were going to be the hardest working band in show business you know like the touring band uh always on the road so all around became like the songs and the, the phrase became a way to talk about that. It also, you know, in a way became um, an opportunity to like sort of play on the isolation of what it's like to be on the road for that long and, and be in a band and how difficult that can be, you know, so the artwork on the record, um, which I'm actually looking at now, I have some LPs is about that it's about like being everywhere but being isolated um it's got the polar bear and there's a picture of the van on the cd and and it all sort of goes together in my mind as like that's what all around is it's more than just like saying like we're going to be everywhere but it's also saying that it's all like post recording you know that where you start to 
process what you made and and start to try to you know interpret it for yourself and then filter it back out through your artwork through the name of the title you through you know all those things you know I, we did that on all of our records you know the world and everything in it same thing you know and the later one are invisible very much that same thing so um that was the only thing i liked about this record or not not the only thing that i liked but like the thing that i thought was the most successful part of this entire album was the artwork like that's for some reason like for a long time i just thought like yes it really it really works you know yeah i mean partially because you know the, the polar bear was painted by my girlfriend at the time and i i just loved that painting and i thought it was great um in the cd there's all these like i remember <laughs> i remember i sort of took the illustrations from like a temp job that i was working at like definitely did not have the rights to use some of these things and i was just like i'm just going to use them anyway they're too perfect no one will know you know like that sort of thing the picture on the back the photograph that's just like a, out the window i still have that photo um the actual photo uh somewhere so that's you know gives me good good memories and you know, good vibes of being on the road and, you know, just somebody pointing the camera out the, out the window at, at the sunset, you know, that sort of thing. So again, it all ties together to me. Like it's all about traveling. It's all about, and that's what that the band was at that time. You know, it, we, we were just a traveling band. We just wanted to be out there um, doing our thing. And yeah, that's what this record is to me. Lookout Records releases all around on April 22nd. 2003. To promote the record, the band would tour throughout the remainder of the year and into the next. The band's excellent sophomore record, The World and Everything in It, would come out two years later. But shortly following the album's release, Lookout would begin to experience a number of financial troubles, leading to layoffs within the company and the suspension of future releases. These unforeseen circumstances would have an effect on the band's experiences thereafter. By the time they would self-release their third record, 2009's Are Invisible, the only remaining members from the lineup that made All Around would be Keebler and drummer Dave Boyles. The band has not released any new material since. And as for Keebler and Black, the two former bandmates share a sense of disappointment in regards to the unfulfilled plans and hopes they had for the band. Because of this, their feelings towards All Around are somewhat mixed. This was very much, you know, the opening sort of salvo, you know, our first record of a three-record deal. You know, in a lot of ways to me, like looking back on it, it is the perfect first record that we should have made at the time. Um, and our next record was the perfect second record to have made at the time. But then, you know, because of circumstances out of our control and look out, you know, running into problems, we didn't get to follow through on this grand plan that we had designed and got the rug sort of pulled out from under us a bit. So it definitely frames this album up in a different way, because then this becomes basically the most well-known record and the one that we had the opportunity to promote 
and like really go for it and you know do what bands do when they go out and they and they push records but i think we felt as we did that which i don't know what did we spend at least a year maybe a year and a half just just slogging away out there like we felt like it didn't represent who we were at the end of the day like after all of that work like we were a better band than this record was representing and we wanted to to have something that that showed that as well does that make sense dan do you think that that's right yeah no i think i think that's fair yeah i mean i think I don't want to be harsh, right? I mean, no, I know. I and it's funny when when you brought up doing this entirely. I didn't want to be like entering it with those feelings, which I are my kind of honest feelings about the record. Like it, exactly as you said, it got reframed as you know we only got two chances, and this was the bigger of the two. And so, I think in a healthy way, we always talked about recordings can't be perfect they're a snapshot of a moment of the people doing the best they can do in a certain moment and i think that it's the only healthy way to look at a record now is to say like we made a good record at the time it's you know it holds up fine for me are there other things we did that i like better sure but you know i think a lot of people feel very very strongly attached to this record and um that's cool. You know, I think it's, it's a lot of people's favorite record and yeah. it's the one that they discovered. And that's great. You're right. Like this is the one that many people connect to it, but when people talk about it um, in that way, it's, we always would play shows. Right. And we would come off stage and be like, what a crappy show. And someone would come up to us and be like, what a great show. We always learn not to be like, no, it wasn't. That was a crappy show. <laughs> um, <laughs> we always learned not to do that because like you know we're not going to invalidate someone's experience they love the show like okay great thank you you know we learned to sort of take that take that uh that compliment and this record is much like that for me like when people really really like it um it's flattering and, and i can go through it and say that there are half a dozen moments on there that i'm like yes that's it um but then there's a lot of uh, a lot of missed missed opportunity and potential. But one thing I would like to say about this album is the making of it. And this is this is what I might remember most about this album was after it was all done, we mixed it. Everybody had gone off to their lands. You know, um, it was Thanksgiving, so you know, Dan, you flew to wherever you were going, and it was just me and the van and I had to drive the van home by myself. I hopped in the van with, you know, the final mixes of this album. And I listened to that album 10 times in a row, you know, just all the way back, just like so happy with it. And just like, God, like, look at what we did. I'm so amazed that we spent this time and this is what we have to show for it. And I'm so proud of it. And then, wow, it's so amazing. And I remember I drove directly to, I worked at a, at a rock club at the time, Talking Head, and I drove directly to the club. And it was like four o'clock in the morning. And like, there were still a couple of people there. And I just came in and I said, we have to listen to this record right now. And, uh, and we did. And, um, and it was a really nice moment for me. Um, so like, that's what I choose to remember about this is like, 
at the time, Dan, to your point, we did make as good a record as we could. And I recognized it at the time. I think, I think afterwards, as we continued to work and come together as a band and, and, and develop, like we reached higher heights. Um, so again, sort of reframing this record in, in that perspective isn't really fair um, because like, yeah, at the time I was just like through the moon. I just was so happy with it. Thanks for listening to A Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Roman Keebler and Dan Black for speaking with me about this very special record. You can stream and buy all around and more from the Oranges Band at theorangesband.bandcamp.com. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter or at thelovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.